Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Georgia O'Keeffe at MoMA. My first guest is Samantha Friedman, the curator of Georgia O'Keeffe to See Takes Time at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Laura Neufeld and Emily Olek also worked on the exhibition. The show presents works on paper that O'Keeffe made in series. Some of these series inform paintings, several of which are also included in the show. The exhibition is on view through August 12th. A fine catalog was published by MoMA. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for about $40. On the second segment, Southern Modern at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia. But first, Samantha Friedman, after the break. Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Gary Simmons' Public Enemy, the first comprehensive career survey of the work of multidisciplinary artist Gary Simmons. Since the late 1980s, Simmons has played a key role in situating questions of race, class, and gender identity at the center of contemporary art discourse. Now, for the first time, through a major exhibition catalog and slate of related programs, visitors will gain a holistic understanding of the complex and profoundly moving work of this influential artist. Plan your visit to see Gary Simmons' Public Enemy at mcachicago.org. On view through July 9th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the captivating new exhibition Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems in Dialogue brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation, making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artist's early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artist's work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South LA, Downtown LA, and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The exhibition Southern Modern, organized by the Mint Museum in collaboration with the Georgia Museum of Art, is on view at the latter through December 10th. Southern Modern is the first project to comprehensively survey the rich array of paintings and works on paper created in the American South during the first half of the 20th century. Featuring more than 100 works of art drawn from public and private collections across the country, it provides the fullest, richest, and most accurate overview to date of the artistic activity in the South during this period and illuminates the important and hitherto overlooked role that it played in American art history. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about Southern Modern or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. And we're back. Samantha Friedman, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start by talking about repetition, about the way Georgia O'Keeffe would riff on a single form in multiple works on paper. But before we talk about why she did that, what are some of the forms she would repeat? When she starts out and the show begins with O'Keeffe in these key years of 1915 to 1917, when she's teaching in various places and she's really developing her visual language for the first time in a mature way, she talks about having shapes in her head that are not like what anybody taught her. So she's taking all of that training that she's received and she's kind of pushing it aside and responding to what she calls the shapes in her head. And so this is this language of organic form, kind of swelling waves, squiggles, bars, often what she calls lines like sounds, a kind of a visual corollary to a sense of music or sound, really an abstract language, often an organic one. So she has forms, be they waves or bolts of lightning or whatever. And instead of, you know, pouring interest in that form into like one drawing or one pastel, she'll often do it over and over and over again. Why? That's the question. That was the question that uh, we faced with this show. And I should say I collaborated with curatorial assistant Emily Olek and associate paper conservator Laura Neufeld. So that's who I mean when I say we. And 
I think the answer that we came to is that the reason why she made work in series is a little bit different for each series, that each series in the show offers a kind of a different logic and a different justification or explanation for why it appears across multiple sheets. So if you work with a series from the very beginning of the exhibition, when you first walk in, you see these three works from 1916 that culminate in Blue Lines 10. These, this really spare set of two lines, one bent, one straight, on a kind of horizon. And in this series, the logic is really clear. You have a very similar form O'Keefe pursues across three sheets in three different mediums. First in charcoal, then in black watercolor, then in blue watercolor. So we get the message here that the reason that she's working in this way is to pursue a form in different materials. We know that she was an artist who was extremely particular about her materials. That's why it was so great to work with a conservator on the show. And so that's what I take to be the reason that she's working in this way here. In another series, you know, for example, we see this quad of blue watercolors from the Brooklyn Museum, also from 1916, and she's no longer working across mediums. She's working in the same medium, but she's simplifying her form across four stages. So we have a different reason. In her Palo Duro Canyon works, we see almost a photographic logic of reframing from sheet to sheet. In the Evening Star watercolors, which I'm sure we'll talk about more, we see her following a durational logic, tracing a phenomenon that happens over time. And so on and on, as we go through the show, we see a different reason why she might have pursued a form across multiple iterations based on the subject, the moment, the means. One of the fun things about the catalog is that it shows some of the likely genesis, genesis, whatever the plural of genesis is, for some of O'Keefe's interest in repetition. And so one of those likely possible sources is a teacher of hers, Arthur Wesley Dow, and kind of exercises he put together. What were those exercises and why do you think O'Keefe, why do you think they landed with O'Keefe? Arthur Wesley Dow was, you know, an extremely influential American arts educator. He taught at Teachers College at Columbia. And O'Keefe first encountered his ideas through Alan Bement at the University of Virginia when she was studying there. And then she goes to Teachers College to study with Dow directly. And Dow had this really important kind of primer, a workbook, if you will, called Composition that was published again and again in slightly different iterations itself. <laughs> And contrary to the training that she was receiving earlier at the Art Students League in 1907-08, where she was really focused on, you know, life drawing and, and mechanical drawing and all of these technical feats, Dow is really offering up a very Asian-inspired approach to composition, to light and dark, to testing and varying composition that appeals to her. And you can see some of the exercises in that book, composition, almost playing out in some of her works, where you see her creating a different frame around a composition in order to see how it changes the rhythm of a work or the feel of a work. And so I think that that approach worked really well with that language, organic abstraction, and those forms that she was pursuing at that time. Does she pursue this seriality, if you will, this seriality in paintings from this period, from the teens through the early 20s, or is it mostly a works-on-paper exploration? I should say that she doesn't actually turn to painting until 1918, which I guess is still very early, but when you come to the exhibition, the whole first half of the exhibition is works on paper from 15 to 17. So you can see how prolific she was in those key two years on paper that it feels like it actually takes a really long time for her to turn to painting in 1918 when Stieglitz invites her to New York. And for the first time, she has the support and the freedom and the space to focus on canvas. And when she does turn to canvas, she does explore seriality too. You get series like her, her Jack in the Pulpit series. There are definitely series on canvas as well. 
And there are also series in the exhibition where she's exploring something on paper and it flows into a canvas and then out of a canvas in another way. In a sort of an interesting way, she turns to pastel more intensely when she turns to canvas as a kind of a corollary in color and texture where she can explore similar things. So sometimes a series is sort of agnostic of medium in that way or, or trans medium. But there's something about her work on paper that was different for me in the sense that a painting can be reworked to the point of invisibility. You don't necessarily see all of the stages in the process in the finished result. So there might be a series of paintings but within any one of those paintings, there might be a secret series of paintings that we didn't get to see underneath, if that makes sense. She is not a pentimenti person. She is on paper. Right, but not on not in paper. Not in, exactly. And so if you look at a drawing like that, there's this 1915 charcoal called Early Number Two that opens the show. Uh, it's in the Manila's collection. It's a beautiful charcoal. And it's, it's this swollen kind of wave that starts in the bottom left of the sheet and curls up toward the top of the sheet and under. And one of the reasons that I love this drawing and why I open the show with it, aside from chronology, is that this wave tumbles down and you get this sense of multiple options within a single drawing. So it's almost like you get a sense of a series within this single drawing. You see her try the wave here, you see it try it there and there and there, and it kind of tumbles down as if in a progression. You get all of that within a single composition. And that's sort of the same logic that she then brings from one sheet to the next. In addition to Arthur Wesley Dow's instructiveness, <laughs> you posit that O'Keefe was interested in photography and the way in which photography could capture rapidly succeeding looks at a single thing. This was not new in, in the mid-19-teens, although within kind of the, the history of the medium, it was relatively new. There are lots of things that might have caught O'Keeffe's eye and interest. Why do you think photography and, that, and the way it could do that grabbed her? We have to think about what an artist is looking at when an artist is making work. And we know that in these early years, when she's making these works on paper, she's devouring copies of Stieglitz's journals, 291 and camera work, and seeing photographs, whether they're his photographs, whether they're the photographs of Ann Brigman, many, many others, reproduced there. And often when they're reproduced in camera work, there's more than one photograph of a particular subject that is, you know, a plate reproduced in that journal. And so I wanted to be attentive to the way that she would be turning the pages, that she would be seeing these works. Of course, once she takes up with Stieglitz and Ernest, the photographic is something that's always around her. Of course, she has a relationship with Strand, too. And, and so this is something that's, that's kind of all around her. And so to, to not think about that as part of the language of repetition and multiplicity within her drawing practice seemed like it would be a mistake. And I think also there was a great exhibition recently making its way across the country that Lisa Volpe organized starting at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston about O'Keeffe's own photography, which she didn't take up in earnest as a practice until much later in her life. But Lisa does this idea of reframing in that catalog that O'Keeffe's vision where she's looking out at the world around her with a kind of a lens, even before she takes up photography in earnest herself and is constantly shifting and changing that lens, I found to be a very useful and smart idea to think about in approaching the works on paper. And, and of course, it's not only Stieglitz. I mean, later on, she'll become friends and will travel with Ansel Adams. And through Ansel. And Elliot Porter. And yeah. So, yeah, so many. You have a great O'Keefe quote in the catalog in which he refers to with the seemingly simple availability of materials as motivation. Quote, cheap paper like this, she writes to Stieglitz, is a great friend lately. A stack of it almost a foot high makes me feel downright reckless. <laughs> it's so great. Her language is so vivid, I have to say, and I should say, Right off the bat, 
that, that it was a huge goal of this exhibition to center her voice. She's certainly an artist about whom many people have said many things. And, you know, having worked on artists like Matisse or Cezanne, who are a little bit more removed from us in time, that there might not be as many mountains of correspondence, that they may not be in the same language that we speak. There's something so direct and present about her voice, so vivid. And one of the things I wanted to do was just let her speak to us about these works on paper. Her letters were closed for 20 years after her death. She died in 1986. She closed off her letters for 20 years after that. And so it's relatively recent that we've had access to her own words about her works, which are amazing. There's an amazing volume of her selected letters between her and Sieglitz that Sarah Greeno published, the great photography curator from the NGA, called My Far Away One, which I totally recommend as fun reading as well as academic reading. And so, so just to say that centering her own voice in particular in relation to her materials and her making work and the specific series in the show was, was key to the goals of the exhibition. But yes, that quote about her feeling reckless is so amazing and, and also speaks to her intentionality about her material choices. She's using cheap paper, not only because it's cheap and accessible, but because she likes the way it makes her feel. She likes the kind of speed and freedom that it offers her. And some of the most iconic works in the show, like that Evening Star series, are made on this student grade cartridge paper. And then we can see when she makes a particular choice to try, you know, gompy paper or to try a longer fibered paper and to test the, the ways that those different papers allow her to proceed. I wanted to ask about a few of the groupings you put together that show O'Keefe going back to back and back and back to particular subjects. And one of those is smoke and or steam. And she goes back to it and draws it in all kinds of different ways. Why do you think she kept going back to ways of representing smoke and steam? Other than that, it sure looks like she's having a heck of a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> right, which is, which is, you know, reason enough for me. I guess I'll say two things. I think she's an artist who is so smart about her materials that there are these moments where what she's choosing to represent is coincident with the materials that she's using. And when you see, for example, this charcoal of the train coming in from the distance in the morning in Texas. It's a trio that we've put together for the very first time of one watercolor in our own collection, a watercolor from Amarillo, and a charcoal from a private collection. In the watercolors, she leaves the smoke in reserve. So you have this blank of the paper and these touches of really vibrant color. And when you see the charcoal, there's this complete perfect union between what she's describing and the medium that she's using to describe it. That she's using this smoky charcoal and swiping it in these kind of plumes. And to me, that's just a perfect distillation of, of the power of her works. The other thing I'll say, and this is true whether it's smoke or whatever else, I think that there becomes a point where O'Keefe starts to look for her own forms in the world. When she starts out and she's younger and she's figuring out her language, she's looking around her, she's observing things, she's extracting these forms from the world around her. And then something starts to happen where she has this vocabulary, whether it's these spirals, whether it's these kind of zigzag lightning bolt shapes, and she starts to see them around her so that the reflection in a pond or a goat's horn or whatever it is calls out to her from the world almost as one of her own shapes fully formed and extant. Interesting thing about those two watercolors showing curls of smoke and the one charcoal. It's really evident from the two watercolors that she's riffing on a train moving along a track. But in the charcoal, you'd never know that. You'd never know it. And, and it, it is almost anthropomorphic. That little train in the yeah. distance starts so to right feel like a little, legs. yeah, 
it's pretty amazing in its spareness for sure. And I think that that's also another lesson from the extent to which she may not care how legible a motif is as a particular thing in the world, right? There's a series in the show of these tents that she makes from camping in Virginia, and she's inside the tent looking out. And when she has one of them on her wall, her landlady thinks it's like a sailboat. And she doesn't, she seems amused by that, not bothered. (laughs) And, you know, she says this great thing many, many years later, and I'm paraphrasing, but she says, "A, a picture is not a good picture because it's a hill or a tree. It's good because it's lines and colors put together so that they say something. So she's, taking these forms from the world that she's observing, but whether or not we read them as such, I think is secondary. I'm glad you mentioned those tent door at night. Well, they're not all called tent door at night, but, but a couple of them are called tent door at night, watercolors, because each of them shows mountains. And that's another thing that O'Keefe paints over and over again in series. And maybe unlike the works we were just talking about that feature smoke or steam or whatever it is that was coming out of trains in 1916, these mountains pretty much all look different. And in fact, some of them, I think, I mean, it's always hard once you know what a thing is, right? But I think wouldn't, we wouldn't think we're mountains if we, unless you know, there was a word in a title or something. Why do you think she pa- paints mountains over and over again. And is it more formal than it is, say, an art historical interest? I think that this is a moment where she's transitioning from those shapes in her head to letting the world in. And so I think that we kind of have to think about what she's seeing and the experiences that she's having. And sort of what visual information is making itself available to her. So we know that in the summer of 1916, she's been teaching at the University of Virginia and she's going out camping in the landscape with friends. And, you know, she writes so lovingly in her letters about that experience. She's so adventurous. She climbs one of the hills by herself to see the sun come up. She's really in and of those, that landscape at that moment. And she's drinking it in. She says, I'm simply soaked with mountains, drunk with it. So she's really like, she's embedded in that landscape in a particular way. So I think that the kind of passion for that subject is not incidental, but I think there is something about what a mountain or a hill is that's kind of perfect for her needs at that moment, which is You know, it's this form that can be so simplified and can appear almost as if abstraction, almost as if it's abstract, but you can sense also that it's a mountain. So if you were to look at Blue Hill Number 2, for example, which is in the O'Keeffe Museum's collection, our most generous and largest lender to the show, you have this expanse of blue. And this is, you know, one we've put on the cover of the catalog too, because this expanse of blue becomes so abstract and she's kind of giving in to the aqueousness of watercolor in this sort of ironic way, right? Like a, a mountain is the most solid thing you can imagine. And we have this completely fluid means of showing it. And all of those kind of those effects, those bled effects, what um, what my colleague Laura, the paper conservator, calls the tide lines, they start to almost resemble geographic or geological idiosyncrasies within the mountain, right? And so she's kind of leaning into the way that her medium can give her a sense of abandon. And then she's also maintaining absolute control with such a tricky medium at, at other moments where she leaves the sliver of the paper in reserve as a boundary between the hill and the sky. Which she does in other mountains paintings too, by the way. Exactly. So she's kind of thinking about what are the kind of most minimal means that I can use to express this form so that it hovers between the thing that I'm describing and a successful composition. A little earlier, you mentioned the Palo Duro Canyon works, of which there are what, kind of, depending on how you count it, eight or 10 or 11 in the show. What is it that you think attracted her to going serial in that particular landscape? By which I mean, was it the 
shape of the earth and the mountains? Was it what was growing at the bottom of the canyon? It's like kind of a unique thing in her oeuvre, which is why I'm asking. I mean, I think one of the things we get with this series, which appears periodically and in the kind of physical space of the exhibition, it was very intentional to include an example of this at the beginning of the show with this series and then again at the end of the show with the aerial views from 1959, is that we get a series of real sketches from O'Keefe, tiny, quick sketches, some of which are even on the bottom of paper bags. And as a works on paper curator, I always hate it when people refer to a drawing that's like a proper drawing as a sketch, but these really are sketches. And, you know, they show us something so important. There's just there's one of these sketches also for the the tent door series, and they show the way that she, in a landscape on site, is kind of committing all of the visual information that she will need to memory or to paper as memory, and working through something, reducing it, laying out her vocabulary of forms, distilling it in a way that will prepare her for the larger works, whether they're the little oil on board or the larger charcoals or the watercolor, where we see her make use of those forms. And so if you were to see those other works that have these titles that don't betray anything about their subject, you might think they're abstractions. People in the show always tell me they look like Louise Bourgeois because they have these kind of cumulus forms, right? Especially that really beautiful untitled abstraction from the NGA that's so reduced and where she's like isolated those round forms on the sheet in such a beautiful way. And so those sketches kind of take us back to how she gets there. And being able to see that operation in action to me is so instructive and so exciting where you go from her writing in her letters about kind of rambling around the canyon and feeling really small amidst its big slopes and trying to get down the forms of the scrubby cedar trees to then arriving at these almost alien works that just feel totally abstract and, and knowing how she gets there. Yeah, they're like right out of Stanley Kubrick or something, and you know, which wouldn't come for 50 more years. Speaking of abstraction, I have been a poor host in that I keep <laughs> referencing specific things, but there's a whole lot of abstraction here, really all the way through the entire show, through the 50s and such. Do you think that O'Keefe's most intense or maybe most adventurous experiments in abstraction were actually on paper and not on canvas? I do. I mean, I think that the reason that I wanted to work on this exhibition is because there's a kind of experimentation that we see here with form all the way through the career, but consistently on paper. That's very different from the quality of form that we get in the paintings. And it just offered up a version of the artist for me that was different from the version that I had known. I mean, she's an artist that we all have so many associations with. We're freighted with so much baggage and both, you know, biographical, mythological, gendered, but also in terms of like that image of, of an O'Keeffe painting, an O'Keeffe flower painting. And for me, this body of work just offers a different view of her. And I think, you know, abstraction is such a tricky idea for her because it's never totally, I shouldn't say never, it's often not one or the other. Even in a work that she'll call an abstraction, you know, like that one of those Palo Duro Canyon charcoals, she calls it an abstraction, but we know where it comes from. And so that's very different from one of the shapes in her head, one of those early charcoal specials where she is talking about, you know, a Kandinsky-like visual corollary to music. Even in those, you know, you mentioned those 1959 works, which totally seem like abstractions and which she gave very neutral titles to. And she tells the art historian and curator Catherine Koo in an interview in 1961 they are what I saw and very realistic to me. So she's, you know, offering these things up as abstraction, but she's reminding us that they came from something she experienced. So it's just, 
what I came away with was a much more complex and rich understanding of that good old binary that we're always trying to sort out. There's an interesting section in the catalog in which you note that O'Keefe, decades before 59, was frustrated not quite by abstraction per se, but by O'Keefe's own inability to find words or phrases that could describe what she was making. You know, being able to communicate in a letter to somebody what she was doing with these, what was in these abstract works. What exactly was it that bothered her, if that's the right phrase, in those years? And we're talking about the mid-teens. Yeah, I love the sense of an art that's completely ineffable, right? And we get the evidence of that in her letters with her friend, Anita Pulitzer, that are also so rich and which I also highly recommend as both fun and academic reading because you have these two young women like at the start of their mature lives and careers and talking really frankly about all the things they want to be and do in this way that's so thrilling. But, you know, O'Keefe is literally rolling up her drawings and sending them in the mail to Anita and asking her what she thinks, like, am I crazy? You know, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And Anita, who is an art student, too, is is kind of weighing in. And they can't, you know, she can't say, oh, I love your, you know, purple horse or whatever it is, because they are so abstract. And so they take to making these little drawings of the drawings in the letters, because that's the only way to really describe it. This little one, and then there's a little drawing of it. And so you get the artist essentializing her own composition in like the the slightest of curves. And they make up these little nicknames for the drawings. And Nita says, oh, this is the one I call cucumber. And the critics are doing the same thing, making up these like ridiculous little names. Oh, that's the scarecrow or whatever it is, because there isn't a way to talk about this language of abstraction yet. And the kind of more fumbly the attempt is, the more touching and humorous it is to us today. I knew about O'Keefe as an abstract drawer and painter. I can't say that until a couple weeks ago, I'd ever really thought (laughs) for a moment about O'Keefe as a painter of the human form, certainly not her own human form, certainly not her own nude human form. How did O'Keefe come to make a suite of nude self-portraits, and how did she feel about them once she'd made them? Yeah, these were a surprise to me, too, when I first saw them and was digging into, you know, making an ideal checklist for this exhibition, these nude watercolors she made in 1917. And she makes them in Texas and she writes to Stieglitz. So again, we get the artist's words directly about making these works. And she says, it never occurred to me to paint myself naked. It was so much fun. (laughs) And I love that because we always hear about an artist struggling, right? We have this sense of an artist coming up against something and the kind of pleasure that she takes in making these is really thrilling. And I think that, you know, she's connecting them to the landscape directly. She, this is the moment when she's working on the evening star watercolors and other images of the Texas landscape. And she says, making them has a curiously funny quality, a feeling of bigness, like the red landscape. So making this really direct connection between her own body, the kind of landscape of her own body and the landscape elsewhere. And she talks about the experience also of being both an artist and a model, right? I mean, she sees in 1908 when she's studying at the Art Student League, Art Students League in New York, she goes to 291 to Stieglitz's gallery and she sees Rodin's nude watercolors. And she dismisses them at that point as being just a lot of scribbles. But we know that she's looking at reproductions of them right before she makes this series of her own works. But you know, in that case, of course, Rodin is the male artist and there would have been a female model. And she, in this case, is both to the extent that the position that she takes in one of them in Nude Series 2 is the same sort of position that we have of her in a photograph, completely unrelated, where she's working on a watercolor. So her modeling position is the same as her working artist position. And she talks about trying out different poses. Oh, I caught myself in an awkward twist and I tried this and I tried that. And 
she takes this kind of pleasure in the abandon with which she makes these works and that you can see in her approach to materials in them that they're really loose. They don't have pencil underdrawing for the most part. She's playing and she's she's having fun. Yeah, there are also a few other art historical references in in the nudes. Lots of French bather poses, including one of, I think, her friend Leah, which is a blue nude from 1918. We've been talking about drawings and watercolors as pretty much standalone works independent of oil paintings on canvas. Does O'Keefe make drawings, including drawings in your show, as studies for paintings? You know, I always, again, this is my bugaboo as a works on paper curator. I don't know that there are always studies for paintings, but she does make drawings in relationship to paintings. There's a, a wall in the show where you kind of exit the first half of the show and you enter the second half and you're confronted with this wall in which this beautiful 1918 pastel called Over Blue is hung with an oil on canvas from the same year, Music Pink and Blue Number 1 from the Seattle Art Museum's collection. And they have a very similar composition. You get this really deep blue void with this kind of series of modulated folds over it. And they both glow, but that glow is achieved in such different ways. You know, she's she's so famous in her in her paintings for creating these kind of smooth transitions between colors so that you almost can't tell where one starts and the other stops. And in pastel, she achieves that same kind of graduated smoothness of, of transition, but she does it in such a tactile way. She's in there with her fingers and she talks about wearing the skin down on her fingers for rubbing so much. And so it glows with a, a kind of a, a quality that, you know, is, is very unique. And she achieves something different in each medium. And she talks about what each medium does for her at this moment. She says, I like using pastels because they move more quickly. I like working in oils because they're more definite. And so she's, she's clear with us about what each medium kind of affords her. And, you know, this is also a moment where she is able to paint, where she has the kind of backing to do so, and where a market is starting to be built for her paintings. And of course, that changes the extent to which she'll continue to work on paper and when and why. Included in the show are a group of 1916 watercolors that I think O'Keefe calls sunrises, which is interesting because to call something as a sunrise is to, to really make a choice. You're, you're pointing out that it's a sunrise and not a sunset. In, in 19th century American art, you know, particularly from, you know, in those years, we often don't have the artist's titles for those paintings if, if they had titles. So the art historian is left to kind of intuit or argue whether something is a sunrise or a sunset. And of course, there's a really rich tradition of sunsets in 19th century American art. You know, one, one line from the 1850s and 60s in which artists like Church and Gifford address the crisis over American republicanism and union, and another instigated mostly by Albert Bierstadt a little later on that referenced the Anglo-Saxonist construction that European American civilization had some kind of obligation to extend itself toward the setting sun, kind of, you know, a big part of the intellectual basis for U.S. white supremacy. And O'Keefe calls these sunrises. Why do you think O'Keefe emphasizes that these are sunrises? I think for her, it's less metaphorical and more experiential. She talks about going out in the morning and watching the sun come up. And so that is a really direct experience that she has. And, you know, in the same way, when she turns to the evening star, that's a direct experience that she has. And so I think she is honestly conveying that experience. So referencing practice rather than declaring independence from a previous tradition. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think she, you know, she goes to Texas and these early years are so exploratory for her. And 
each location where she lands provides something new for her in a formal way. She goes to Texas and the sky is so amazing. It's so big. The plane is so big. The colors are so rich that she previously has been working only in charcoal, then only in blue watercolor. Then she adds a little green to the watercolor, a little red. And when she gets to Texas, her palette explodes because the sky explodes. And so she's conveying that awe. She writes, you know, to Anita, the sky, Anita, you have never seen the sky. And I think she's, she's honest about that feeling. We, we can sense that. So finally, most of this show, two thirds of it, maybe a bit more, dates to 1922 or earlier. O'Keefe is 35 years old in 1922, which is to say she would live another 64 years. Is she mostly making fewer works on paper in her final decades, many decades? Or are you making a curatorial choice that the early works are more interesting, maybe even more interesting to you? I will say she made as many, if not more, works on paper in those first two years that she then she made the entire rest of her life. Yeah. So there's definitely it's a front loaded enterprise. She was not kidding about that stack of paper then. She was not, she was so reckless. She was downright reckless. So it is a front loaded enterprise for sure. What's interesting to me is when she returns to work on paper after she turns to painting. When she, you know, stops working for a moment of personal difficulty, goes to Bermuda and sees the slow blossoming of a banana flower and begins working again on paper. Or when she, you know, makes a series of portraits, very realistic portraits of her fellow artists, Buford Delaney. These are enterprises that she takes up on paper when she's you know, making these sketches, again, sketches from the airplane window, looking down and then translating those into beautiful charcoals, which will then find their way to canvas. So these moments of experimentation, of change, of travel, those moments when kind of paper surfaces again and thinking about why. She lives a really long life. She continues to work until the end with some challenges And the show is not meant to be a retrospective. It's not meant to be a wholesale look at her works on paper. It's looking in particular at the way she pursued certain ideas on paper again and again. And so I've tried to highlight and to choose. Of course, there always is some some curatorial selecting or else, you know, we wouldn't have a job. But, you know, these are the moments when this thesis is strongest. Those banana flower works you just mentioned date to 34, so well beyond 22. Samantha Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. Robert Motherwell Pure Painting at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth is the first exhibition in more than a quarter century to examine the work of Robert Motherwell, a major figure who shaped post-war art. Offering new insights into his evolution as an artist and his impact on modernism, the exhibition is organized by guest curator Susan Davidson and features a selection of 56 visually compelling works from throughout the artist's career, including 12 paintings from the Moderns collection. Although Motherwell was equally proficient as a collagist, printmaker, and draftsman, it is Motherwell's expansive sense of painting that this retrospective explores. Beginning with the abstracted figurative works that dominated Motherwell's first decade of painting as he emerged in the New York art world of the early 1940s, the exhibition highlights the depth of his 50-year career. Robert Motherwell Pure Painting at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth from June 4th to September 17th. On view now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, Spirit in the Land, a contemporary art exhibition that examines today's urgent ecological concerns from a cultural perspective. Spirit in the Land demonstrates how intricately our identities and natural environments are intertwined. Through their artwork, 30 artists show us how rooted in the earth our most cherished cultural traditions are, how our relationship to land and water shapes us as individuals and communities. The works reflect the restorative potential of our connection to nature and exemplify how essential both biodiversity and cultural diversity are to our survival. 
Artists in the exhibition include Wangeshi Mutu, Radcliffe Bailey, Hugh Locke, Stacey Lynn Waddell, and Sheldon Scott. On view through July 9th. Learn more at nasher.duke.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum, the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation. On view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org slash impressionist. Welcome back. Next up, Jonathan Stolman joins me. He's the curator of Southern Modern, a survey of modernism from artists who were from, worked in, or visited the American South that opens this weekend at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia. It will remain on view through December 10th. The exhibition is accompanied by an excellent catalog published by University of North Carolina Press. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for between $30 and $75. By the way, the Kindle version is a good deal. Jonathan Stolman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Why is it important to present the story of American modernism as being more than only a Northeastern and Stieglitzian story, which kind of tends to be the case? You know, I think that it, it's it's a chapter of American art history that always gets left left out, the way that American art is told, just as you know, many parts of work made in many parts of the country, I think, is less visible unless you're in that region. And so, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Stieglitz, and I always, I always tell people, you know, the point of the show is not that we've rediscovered some Stieglitz circle <laughs> functioning in, in Georgia or Tennessee or somewhere that no one ever knew about beforehand, and we're, we're kind of reintroducing it to the world. It's more that there's, you know, the South in particular, I think, during this period, during the first half of the 20th century, is seen as, I think, in, generally as an artistic backwater and that there's not much going on, or if there's something going on, it's kind of leftover impressionism. And, you know, so when I, you know, I'll admit that was kind of my, <laughs> my upbringing within the world of art history. And so when I started spending time in the South and working here and rediscovering or discovering all kinds of fascinating artists and getting to know all of the museums and colleagues and, and projects that happened within the region over the years, I felt like there's there's a lot here that there's work that's been done, but that hasn't been kind of pulled together and looked at comprehensively. And I think if that happens, at least with this show as a starting point, it's not going to become half of <laughs> half of our history of that period in this country, but at least it, it can be enter the, the story a little bit more. Early in your catalog essay, you go through the numerous surveys of American modernism that have been done in exhibition and book form over the years, and you note that darn near all of them exclude the South from their consideration. And of course, as I read the list, I noted that most of them exclude the Far West, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So that's essentially the Americanist field, the historical Americanist field following the New York art market, you know, an attachment from which the Americanist field still, after all these years, has yet to free itself. And of course, the art market has always hewed closely to white male achievement. So as you worked on this show, on this project over the last decade, what types of histories and art histories did you come to find were overdue for surfacing and centering? Sure. I mean, I think there are a number of things that emerge. You know, some of them, you know, if if you start looking across the artists who are included in the show, you know, a lot of those artists did travel to New York. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that in the early 20th century and even a little before, outside of maybe Chicago or or certainly Philadelphia, you know, that was where one would go for for training. I mean, it kind of was (laughs) just due to the the number of, of dealers, the number of museums there, the number of opportunities, that was where people would kind of go to train. And, and the question is, you know, did they come back to the South? Who was going there? Who was going to other places? And so I think what, what you'll see is, you know, any number of themes. I mean, there's the importance of women to the to the development of art in the South, and particularly, you know, any number of museums in the South were started by women, and they're important parts of art leagues and clubs and, and things like that. 
And then the other thing that we start to see, and I think Shawnee Harris ex- explored this in her essay nicely, and, and, and Jonathan Waltz touches on it as well, is you know, the, the rise of HBCUs during this period and the importance of the artists who taught in and founded those programs. So you see, you know, those are two kind of key components, I think, that were essential to, to the development of art in the South during the period. There are a bunch of really good essays in the show's excellent catalog. We will have a link to it on manpodcast.com. And I should also note that the catalog does a really great job of including within it works that couldn't be in the show for one reason or another, you know, murals or, or, or paintings that were too large to travel and whatnot. Yeah, and we intended the catalog. I mean, I think the the subject matter is so rich, and we could have gone to twelve different different scholars and gotten twelve different essays. And you know, the catalog was meant to be not as much. You know, when we were talking with UNC Press from the beginning, it was this is an accompanying publication. I mean, it does have a checklist of things in the show. You know, of course, at the at the end, and and it centers around works in the show. But we really wanted it to be something that was accessible to even a more general audience. So that's why there's a list of kind of starting points for suggested readings on most of the artists in the show at the back. And also, you know, to include more than what was it, what could be in the show even to give people, you know, to get people thinking, we want it to be a starting point. It's not certainly by no means meant to be a conclusive publication, but, but really something to bring things together and, and open up hopefully, you know, new directions. There's no single thread that, runs through the show or that holds it all together other than the time period, of course. So I pulled out a few things that struck me as, as I read the catalog and thought I would raise a few of them. One of them is that like, I was, I was just kind of astonished at how often painters showed the earth, the ground, the land as red. Jacob Lawrence, Hale Woodruff, Clementine Hunter, Mildred Nungister Wolf, Charles Shannon, Nell Choate Jones, Robert Guathney, Crawford Gillis. I mean, I could keep going. Why did so many artists paint the earth as being red? <laughs> well, that was the, the title of my essay, right? Red, red clay beneath my nails. <laughs> yeah, under, but yeah. <laughs> under my nails, yeah. I think it's because, it, you know, it's something that's seen as kind of distinctive to the region. I mean, certainly, you know, you've, you've been here long enough. You know that not all the dirt here is red. <laughs> Well, certainly none of it in the Southern Appalachians is until you get into North Georgia. <laughs> that's right. I mean, you know, over by... In, in Charlotte, up towards Durham, sure. You know, I think it, it's it's become something that kind of is a, a signifier for the region, and you know, both the agriculture industry that was forever such a part of its history and still is. You know, it it definitely signals South, right? I know I tend to find that that anywhere else. I mean, when I moved down to North Carolina from Connecticut when I was thirteen, you know, it was distinctive. It did stand out. So this is not a show rich in Emersonian metaphor, but it did seem like. For a lot of the artists, the redness of the earth, even if it wasn't kind of Georgia red clay, could metaphorically serve as as blood. Yeah, I mean, I think you, that's probably a, a valid interpretation. I don't know that I've seen in the writings, or, you know, any of the artists writing about their work, thinking about that. But sure, I mean, that's you kind of can't escape the <laughs> the bloody history of of the region too. And that was actually, you know, it was interesting when we came up with the checklist for the show. We were trying to make sure we hit on the ba- you know, touch the bases of all the artists and all the different parts of the region that we could. And then when it came time to you know coming up with the checklist is one thing, but structuring you know how an exhibition is presented is is another. And that actually we ultimately came up with kind of six subsections for the exhibition itself. And one of them is, it's called The Enduring Landscape. And so that we did kind of group a number of those works together to talk about how even though the South was rapidly industrializing during this period that the show covers, that you couldn't escape, you know, the land, the land was still critical to its identity. And whether that's, you know, transition from, you know, plantations to sharecropping, whether, and the difficulties of what happened to the land during the Depression, or whether it's, you know, transition, the growth of the lumber industry. I mean, there are any, any number of <laughs> of reasons that the land was still a critical component of the South's identity. Two of my favorite paintings in, in the catalog that show the earth is red are um, a Romare Bearden from the early 1940s that's at the Berkeley Art Museum that I'd never seen before, and a Jacob Lawrence also from the 1940s. And, and, and for Lawrence, in this period, red is always blood, right? 
and and so those two those two really stood out to me. Another substantial kind of near theme in the show is people. There are a whole lot of people in the show, and they aren't always doing labor, but they're very, very often doing labor. Were there reasons why laborers were of particular interest to Southern painters in the first 40 years of the 20th century? Well, I think in, in, in part, I mean, it speaks to kind of what I mentioned before and that you know, the South was at a point of transition where there was, you know, on one hand, lots of people leaving. <laughs> on the other hand, those that stayed, you know, you, you either kind of eked out your living, subsisting off of off of the land, or you moved to, you know, the growing cities and, and joined, whether it's a factory, a mill, a factory, um, you know, you joined kind of that, that sort of a workforce. So I think, you know, it's definitely of interest to the artists of the period. And I think partly the reason you'll see that, I mean, I talk about this in my intro too, is is that we kind of bring together high modernism and kind of modernism as it relates to depicting contemporary life in the show. And so I think because we're not only focused on artists who are kind of pursuing that pathway towards abstraction, we're bringing in what, you know, would typically be called American scene or regionalist painting. That's probably another reason why you see so many people in the show, right? A lot of those people are doing labor. It's usually agricultural labor. There are also a lot of industrial landscapes in the show. I was really struck by how much ag and how much industry there is in these paintings. Was that something that surprised you as you spent a decade on on this project? <laughs> a little bit. I mean, and even something, even some of the landscapes, I mean, they're, they're about industry. I mean, you, you look at something like Lamar Dodd's Copper Hill, which is, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it as closely as I can. I don't know that there's any actual people in it, but certainly it's about the effects and the impact of human industry on the landscape. You know, even in paintings without people, I think it, it is about industry. The other thing is that, you know, there are people, you know, not just working or doing other things, but, you know, there's, there's entertainment, there's religious scenes, there's baptism, there's the painting like Carrie Freund's Crossroad Forum, people coming together to talk about issues of the day. You know, so that there are any number of images with people in them that, you know, touch on other aspects. I and mean, one of the smaller sections of the show that we did is called Religion and Ritual. So you've got any number of the kind of paintings that relate to spiritual songs and, and representations of them as well. There are a lot of baptisms in American painting going back to like Worthington Whitridge and in a way George Innes. So it's not a sub Southern subject, maybe only historic. On, it's not only a Southern subject historically, but, but it's interesting to see it as a subject that carries into the 20th century and, and after the moment at which the Northeast was obsessed with, you know, burning over districts, shall we say. Um, <laughs> so there, there are, you know, big name artists here, you know, Hale Woodruff is well represented, Jacob Lawrence, Robert Guathme, I think I'm going to call a big name. Even though I, he <laughs> maybe, deserves... maybe if you're in the field, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm always like, super delighted to see Guathme. Who were some of the artists that, as you worked on this project, you came to think deserve more possibly monographic attention? You know, someone like Ted Fares is a great example who worked in in Memphis. Um, I was he was someone whose whose work I was really fascinated by. You know, seeing what he was doing in the forties, fifties, sixties. You know, I thought his work was fascinating, and and a lot of these artists, you know, it's interesting. A lot of them have had monographic shows. But they've tended to be, you know, at these smaller southern institutions. And so because those shows might have only appeared at one venue or one or two venues in the region, you know, they haven't kind of escaped <laughs> escaped into the the broader orbit of American art history. I mean, certainly there are artists in the show like Lois Milo Jones and others who who have you know achieved that level. You know, someone like Gregory Ivey, who is working in uh, Greensboro during the 40s, 50s, and 60s as well. Yeah, so I think there are there are a number. I mean, Will Henry Stevens, I mean, if you look at any museum in the Southeast has like <laughs> 10 or 12 Will Henry Stevens sitting in their storage room, but you don't see them that much outside of the region. The work is, is pretty is pretty great, I think. Yeah, so there's there's a number of artists like that who I think are known within the region, but it, it's how do you get the, how do you get them better known beyond? And I think it's the point of a show like this that hopefully begins to raise their visibility, and then they get integrated integrated into you know the bigger picture of American art history to some extent. I also noticed in the catalog that kind of within the show is a certain argument that the South was a particular center of modernist printmaking. Is that a fair comment? And if it is, why was there so much printmaking going on in the South? 
Yeah, I mean, that was in, in Martha Severn's essay, and Martha was great. Martha, from the beginning, has has really been, she was, you know, my co-curator, co-organizer, kept me on task. And I think, you know, she writes about that. I think when you look at the prints that are in included in the show, and, and you think about the artists who were making prints at the time, I wonder if it's partly because, you know, if you think about printmaking as, as a particularly democratic, easily, you know, has a lower price point, you know, it's more saleable in, in, in some ways. Now, I wonder if that has something to do with it, that these artists were, were seeking to create works that, that were more saleable to less affluent audiences. You know, I think a, a number of the prints of artists in the show, like Blanche Lazelle or Grace Martin-Taylor, I mean, these are artists who are also coming together at places outside of the South and making prints, like Provincetown, and then bringing those skills back to the region. So, you know, so I wonder if, if kind of those factors have something to do with it as well. Also, a lot of the printmakers in the show are women. Yeah, and it's it. So it's interesting. You look at something like Grace Martin Taylor or Lizelle, who are definitely moving towards that more kind of simplified forms, bold colors, the white line prints. Those are one style. But then you look at someone like Claire Layton, who I find particularly fascinating, partly because the Mint has a big collection of her work, and I've gotten to know it well. But here's here's an artist who came to the South already an accomplished wood engraver from England, and then lived in North Carolina for a number of years before moving up to Connecticut. But so I think you have artists like her who are coming who can teach what they know as well. And that spurs in subsequent generations to to go on and, and utilize those skills. Her firewood in Georgia is maybe my favorite print in the show. <laughs> <laughs> right before I started here, I guess, there was a local collector who had put together holdings of you know, somewhere around 150, 200 works by Leighton and donated them to the museum. So we did a, a show uh, my first show I did here in catalog and just digging into her work. It's pretty remarkable. And yeah, firewood in Georgia, I mean, you can't escape the kind of Christ-like illusion of <laughs> bearing the cross in that in that print. And so we had to pick from all of these, you know, not all of her prints are Southern. A lot of them were done in England and depict other things. So yeah, so we, we, we picked that one and then the moonshine still because you've got to have the moonshine in the show That's somewhere. That's fantastic. That one's pretty <laughs> fantastic too. But yeah, I mean, you look, you look across her work and she's doing baptism. She's doing cockfights. I mean, she, you know, she's, she's, she did a whole a series on North Carolina folklore. So she's an artist who really, and she didn't just do them because she heard about these things. I mean, she would travel across the state and meet these people and, and really get to know what was going on in their communities, you know, earn their, their trust to be able to, to see something like a moonshine still, and then, and then make a print of it. The final kind of area I wanted to raise is one you, you touched on earlier, and that's abstraction. We do not think of of the South as the center of early modernist abstraction. But you have paintings, you have abstract paintings here from like 1915. Blanche Lazelle is making abstract works on paper in the early 1920s. Will Henry Stevens is abstracting from landscape, kind of feels like Charles Crutch painting, almost feels like he's abstracting away from Charles Crutch in, in, in the late 30s and 40s. What, is, is that because artists from the South were engaging with artists in Europe or New York that were playing with abstraction, or is it more home, home, homegrown than that? No, it's the former. I mean, <laughs> so like I said, I mean, the, the show is not making the case that, as I said before, there's some kind of un, unknown Stieglitz circle that was functioning here that was doing it at the same time that, you know, Arthur Dove was in New York. <laughs> And I think if you look, I mean, obviously you'll, you'll you'll see the majority of the works in the show that kind of engage with with that avenue of aesthetic uh, exploration. You know, most of them tend to come from the beyond that 30s, 40s, 50s. So it, it's more, I think, showing that you know there is an awareness of this type of work from these artists because a lot of them had spent time in Europe, had spent time in New York, and you know later on in the timeline of the show, 40s and 50s, you know there were were works or exhibitions that started to bring this work kind of work down to the region. And so I think what was more important was just to acknowledge that the artists working here from this region were aware of it and were processing it in their own ways. Not that they were kind of leading and innovating, but, but yeah, that there was an awareness and engagement with what was going on out there in the world and that it was happening you know, here as well. Finally, I wanted to raise Black Mountain College, which you note in the catalog didn't have did not have that much influence on making in the south black mountain comes along you know really kind of at the end of the show's chronological life anyway why didn't black mountain college have as much influence on art practice in the south as maybe maybe one might expect i mean it must be said the the southern appalachians are kind of 
their own other, own other world. <laughs> they are. And I, I mean, I think, you know, we, we felt that it was important to include Black Mountain and we did one Alberts and one Elaine de Kooning just to have kind of what, you know, one of the founding members and then one of the you know important students who came and spent time there and grew out of Black Mountain. You know, certainly we didn't feel like we needed to do a whole section just because nowhere else got that treatment and Black Mountain's been done <laughs> many times. And, you know, that show that the ICA in Boston did a few years ago was really terrific, I think, in terms of the ground that it covered in relation to Black Mountain and its importance. I think partly because when I mean, you look at other colonies, artist colonies in the South, and obviously Black Mountain wasn't a colony, but I'm going to use those <laughs> as a, a parallel in a way. These are, are places in Mississippi and in Louisiana that that are drawing in artists from the region and sustaining kind of creativity in the region, whereas Black Mountain very much brought in artists from all over the country, but you know, mostly New York, right? <laughs> well, Ruth saw was California. Well, sure, but uh, I said all over the country, yeah, but mostly. Yeah, yeah. I'm always going <laughs> to raise the flag. <laughs> but I think you know, partly it it was that. I mean, it, it was you know, who came to it, fed who got invited the next year, who knew of it. And I think it was in some ways a kind of an insular little place. And it certainly was an incubator for a lot of great ideas. And there were artists, I mean, you know, someone like Kenneth Noland, who's from Asheville, who spent time there. But I think by and large, it didn't kind of radiate outward within the region as much as one might imagine. I presume geography has a lot to do with it. I mean, Black Mountain is just you know, in, in, in terms of the chronology covered in the show is, you know, not connected to anywhere else in the South by, by even good highways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and like you said, I mean, it does fall. I mean, I, I think it's lifespan. It falls kind of in the middle. I mean, it started in thirties, but you know, primarily forties, fifties, it, it does fall kind of towards the end of, of the run of, of the show. And, and that was one of the kind of you know, we had to kind of, what, what are our parameters for the exhibition? And so we kind of came up with, you know, towards the end of World War II, early early 50s was the stopping point. And I think, you know, you'll see the effect of Black Mountain on modern art at large, kind of from the 50s onward, but maybe not so much, just in terms of opening up so many different kinds of artistic practice into, into the field, into the canon, the integration of different ways of thinking about making art. I mean, I think it, its true impact comes on a, on a probably more a broader national scale slightly after the the arc of our our project absolutely jonathan stallman thanks very much oh my pleasure it's great to talk to you that's all for this week's show the modern art notes podcast is edited by wilson butterworth special thanks to steve roden who created the sound for the program the Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.